Who was the best babysitter in the Bible? David. He rocked Goliath to sleep. If you want more hilarious jokes like that and the origin story of Jesus' ancestor and great king, join us today as we discuss the beginning of the story of David. to Wadi Cherith, the podcast where we sling stones and slay giants. Today, oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. That's why I said it. I'm Father Alex Roach, and joining me today is Father Anthony Dill. Hey, Alex. How you doing? I'm great. <laughs> As you may have anticipated. There's a running joke here. How are you doing? <laughs> We're um, talking today about at least the beginning of the story of David, the famous king of Israel. And likely this will be a multi-part episode because there's a lot to this story, but it's one that is so crucial to understanding the story of Israel uh, and understanding the origins of Christianity, really. Yeah, Jesus Christ is referred to as son of David by a lot of people in the Gospels and, and references are made to David and the line of David and the kingship of David. So. It is. It is a giant story in the Jewish tradition and also a giant story in our tradition. So who's your favorite king ever, anywhere? Wow. Any country, anything? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it sounds like you're leading me to think of David because that's all I've been thinking about. That would be the most boring possible answer. <laughs> well. And not Jesus. He's king of kings. That's uh, Elvis, king of rock and roll. Ooh. Michael Jackson, king of pop. Yeah. Um, Polka King of the Midwest. Polka King of the Midwest. Was that its title? <laughs> was that John Candy's title? I think so. Wow. Kenosha Kickers. The Kenosha King Kickers. We're constantly referencing Home Alone on this podcast. It's, Who is uh, your, who's your king? Some would, English king from like 300 years ago, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's so many to choose from here, you know? So many great kings. So many great kings. In... A lot of saint kings. There's a lot of saint kings. Yeah, none of them, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Good King Wenceslas went Good out. King Wenceslas is was pretty, Stephen. It's pretty rock solid. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say I'm a uh, King Arthur, King uh, Edward the Confessor. Of course. Oh, English king! What a surprise! Yeah. Oh, he's a confessor, so he is uh, a strong Catholic character. He is, but he was manipulated by his father-in-law, Harold Godwinson, for most of his reign, or that whole family manipulated him and tried to, like, control the nation while he was king, and his solution... I'm familiar with this sort of story. Yeah, so it's just obviously (laughs) something we all know. So his solution was just to not sleep with his wife and not have a child... And just name his cousin, who was the Duke of Normandy, uh, his successor. Bizarre. Yeah. Just threw everything into chaos. Love it. Bizarre. What other kings are great? 
I think we've talked about enough. Uh, enough about <laughs> My king knowledge is really, really shallow. Yeah, I'm showing showing the weaknesses in your king knowledge. Charles II was always uh, was always a great one. Uh, the only English king who was executed by his people. How about King Ahab? King Ahab, yeah, not, Elijah the prophet. Not a great one. Uh, point of view. Yeah, I guess. So. David, to bring us to more the, small talk. No, I, I certainly think that's not the problem. <laughs> <laughs> we want to get to the kings of Israel. We had an episode on Samuel, the king maker, and then we talked about the first king of Israel was Saul. And now we're getting into the transfer of power from Saul to David. An awkward situation of like them both kind of being anointed kings at the same time. It was an awkward situation. Samuel sort of precipitates a crisis of authority in Israel in a lot of ways, because there are two men alive at the same time who are both anointed king. Wait, hold on. We forgot. We did a podcast on Martin Luther King Jr., who's also a great king. (laughs) Another king. (laughs) (laughs) So just just for reference, the, uh, the entire story really begins when the people of Israel, the Jewish people, ask Samuel to give them a king. Now, this was a, a, a strange request because what separated Israel from the rest of the nations at the time was that they didn't have a king. God was their king. So periodically in, in the book of Judges and also First Samuel, God will rise up what's called judges to serve as, as leaders of his people. Uh, You know, in one tribe, one of the 12 tribes will be ascendant at, at various times. So when there's a crisis, God raises up the leader that they need. So when they come to Samuel asking for a King, it's really a, a betrayal in a way it's the people wanting to look just like every other nation, wanting to have what everyone else has and in a sense, they forsake the kingship of God. They forsake what makes them distinct. And, and Samuel warns them. He says, this will go poorly. A king will take your stuff and beat you up, as we heard in, um, in our Samuel podcast. But he gives them the king nonetheless. It's a temptation that we all have not to, not to be able to just sit in the unknown. We want to be able to see the leader. We want to be able to like control the leader a little bit. We want to be able to predict what the leader is going to do. Um, we, we just, we hate not knowing what God's up to or God's power. And we'd rather forfeit some of his power just to be able to have it a little bit in what feels like in our control. So as they have a king, Saul is their king and is reigning for a while. And, and Saul has the same temptation. Like he, he runs into a couple different things where he makes promises or he doesn't wait for God's timing. He makes a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. And ultimately his reign kind of starts to end because they're fighting against the Amalekites. And in the battle, there's this thing called the curse of destruction that happens. And God commands them, the Israelites to kill everything and everyone and not keep anything for themselves. This is like ancient wars 
warriors would go into the war because they would be able to get rich from it. They'd be able to steal the loot from the people that they killed and gain glory and also get slaves by the people they had or ransom. They, you could keep a king and ransom him and make a ton of money. But again, like God is doing this program where he's not trying to make you like all the other nations. He's not trying to make you rich this way. He's trying to eliminate a cancer, which is the sinful people away from the people of God. So the people of God can be set apart and made holy. And Saul does this decision to keep the king of the Amalekites named Agag. And this is referenced a little bit in our Esther podcast as well, the the relationship of the Amalekites to Haman eventually. And he also decides to keep some of the livestock and Samuel, the prophet who anointed him, hears the livestock and, and sees the slave and is like, what are you doing, Saul? And Saul responds to him and says, um, I did this for your God. I did this for your God. We kept these these livestock so I could sacrifice them on Mount Carmel for your God. And I kept the king uh, as a prize for your God. And he said, my God, our God doesn't want that. And Samuel takes a sword and cuts off King Agag's head and tell Saul he's lost the kingship. And that is sort of the last in, in a series of, of missteps that Saul makes. So all sorts of ways that Saul is behaving more like a worldly leader than God's instrument. Not only that, but he like he twists the words into acting like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. In fact, Samuel says, what are you doing? And he says, I did what the Lord asked. And then he's explaining how he's going to sacrifice these things to Samuel's God. And that reminds me, uh, I, I coach wrestling. And the one thing that takes the coach, the head coach off more than anything else is if he corrects somebody or like tries to tell somebody how to do something and they say, that is what I was doing. Um, one time we were in the room and he was showing, he's like, stop doing it this way, do it this way. And then he goes, I was doing it that way. And the coaches started repeating, screaming, I was doing it that way. I was doing it that way. And then made everybody in the room do pushups for like a, a dis, uh, disclosed amount of time. Uh, Cause he's just like, that's the most frustrating thing and like belittling condescending thing when you're trying to help somebody and they say, I was doing it that way. Is 100% the most frustrating thing to coach <laughs> when a kid says they were doing it the proper way. It's like, well, okay. Uh, I guess I'll go home. You yeah, got this. I guess. Then, Can't believe you're not undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, then why did we have 10 yards rushing last week? Because <laughs> everyone was doing everything correctly, I guess. Yeah, it's perfect. In fact, their coach called us and said, maybe your kids could teach us some things. Everything is amazing. So that's exactly what Saul's doing. Yeah, exactly. Saul is the kid on the offensive line that gave up seven sacks and had four, (laughs) but did everything correctly. (laughs) Yeah. So Samuel is instructed by God to then go to the town of Bethlehem, which you may be familiar with, uh, offer a sacrifice. And God says that he will show him the next king of Israel. So he goes and um, he meets this man named Jesse, who is a descendant of uh, Boaz, who was one of those judges that we had uh, introduced before. And 
Jesse brings all of his impressive sons and Samuel's, you know, one by one thinking, oh, maybe this is the guy. He's he's tall. He's like a good guy. He's tall. Um, But God keeps telling him, no, it's not him. It's not him. And he asked Jesse, uh, is that it? Do you have any more kids? And God told me it was supposed to be your kids, but it's not working out. And he says, uh, well, there's, where's my, my youngest kid. And as a, as a youngest child, I appreciate that. Um, but he's out, he's out with the sheep. Um, you know, maybe that's the guy. So his brother goes in and calls in David, who's working with the sheep and he comes in handsome and ruddy in appearance. And as soon as Samuel sees him, he says, this is the guy. So David is not only connected to Boaz, but also Ruth. Uh, and there's a great book in the Bible about Ruth. It's called the book of Ruth, <laughs> which is a great story of um, foreigners, a great story of friendship, um, a story that then is is included in the genealogy of David and by extension, the genealogy of Jesus, right? So Ruth is, is in that line as well. She's a, a foreigner, a Moabite, and um, her... Her husband dies and her mother-in-law, she decides to stay with her and she becomes Jewish and then eventually marries Boaz through that right. But um, so we have this kind of foreigner who becomes part of Jesus's bloodline, but also we'll see David will escape to Moab um, during this story itself back to kind of Ruth's homeland. Right. So uh, he takes this kid and it said he's ruddy and ruddy cheeks and handsome in appearance. And uh, even though he's a little dirty, maybe because he's a shepherd, uh, well, just a little dirty, just a little dirty, probably sheep smell really bad. If, if you haven't spent a lot of time with sheep, they're smelly. Um, and Samuel anoints him and then sends him into Saul's service. And the anointing is, is he got like a horn full of oil and just dumps it on his head. Is that what it looks like? Well, that's it, it. It actually, I think, it describes it more in more depth when he anoints Saul. Actually, he says, "Just dumps a horn of oil on his head." <laughs> <laughs> Boom! So much not, power. Not what happens at our ordination. They don't dump a, dump a horn of oil on our head. That's what they should do. Yeah, maybe. I've heard, maybe. I've, there's a lot of symbolism with anointing, like uh, the oil itself, like what the olive oil is. Or I've also heard it, it puts a reflective like sheen on you. So it shows you kind of not just being a material thing, but reflecting light and divinity as well. A a sense of like divinity being associated with you through anointing. Yeah. And as Catholics, we are anointed multiple times in our lives. So you're uh, anointed at your baptism. Uh, You're anointed at your confirmation. You're anointed at your ordination for all of us who are ordained. Uh, you're anointed when you're when you're sick or or dying or maybe um, going in uh, for surgery, going under anesthesia. So there's all sorts of times throughout uh, our lives as Catholics that we encounter this oil, which also would have been used when you were anointing a king. And so it's it's like a, a sign of divinity being with you. It's a sign of like sealing in God's spirit. It's a sign of health and strength, like from the olive oil, like an olive tree lasts forever. What other symbolism comes with oil? Well, um, I remember uh, one of our uh, Old Testament. Yeah, one of our Old Testament professors used to talk about oil being 
especially meaningful for a desert people, for a nomadic people, because coming in parched by that hot desert sun, just to have that soothing oil would have been this great sign of welcome and hospitality and and comfort after kind of baking all day. And I think that she was talking about maybe in Psalm 23 about that. Um, he has anointed my head with oil. Yeah. Uh, prepared a banquet for me in the sight of my foes. Um, and also Psalm 133. How good it is when brothers live in unity. It's like oil running down over the beard. Of Aaron. Apparently that feels good. Yeah. I wouldn't know because Bishop didn't put a horn of oil all over my head. <laughs> that was our one chance. I I grease people down when I baptize them. I just dump a puddle of oil in the palm of my hand and just go all over their head. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do not do that. Oh, yeah. They're washing that out for days. <laughs> <laughs> I always I always let the kids smell the the chrism. Oh, yeah. It's uh. There's a balsam extract inside of the olive oil. Yeah. Chrism. So yeah, there's so there's three oils we we use as um, as Catholics. There's the oil of catechumens, the oil of the infirmed, which is when you're anointed, uh, anointing of the sick, and then there's sacred chrism, which is baptism, confirmation, and ordination. And ordination, they, they like grease your hands down. Confirmation, it's a, a cross on your forehead, and baptism, it's on the crown of your head. And anointing of the sick, it's on your head and both your both your palms. Oh yeah. And every all the times I've anointed kings, it's a I've used a horn, a horn. I've used a horn, <laughs> hornful. So the recipe that, calls for one hornful. <laughs> now that David is in Saul's service, I, w- I want to talk about like why he was there first, though, because Saul lost the spirit of God, and David is anointed, and all of a sudden you see the spirit of God starting to work because. They're telling Saul he's like got these headaches and melancholy because he's lost the spirit of God. So apparently that's what that feels like. And David is this harpist who has apparently a good voice and, and is a good musician. And right away, someone says, oh, I know David's a good harpist, even though they don't know David was anointed king. And he becomes this part-time musician for King Saul to alleviate his melancholy and pain from the feelings that he's going through. So Saul starts to like David, but David's like commuting because he goes back and still watches the sheep. And then he also gets named armor bearer and brings gifts to Saul. So he's going back and forth between Israel's camp and the Royal court and his home to watch the sheep. Still. He's a commuter. He's a, yeah, he's a commuter. You know, one of those, yeah. he stays in the commuter's lounge. He doesn't have a dorm room. <laughs> so he, he goes up to, Fight this giant Goliath. Goliath said Goliath is calling out and insulting Israel's camp over and over and over again. And David hears this as he's on his commute. And he wants to go and fight Goliath and his brother. I like this and and I think you would like this too, just because we're both younger brothers. I, I'm I'm a middle, but we're both younger brothers. And one of his brothers, Eliab is upset because David is acting like he's going to go down and fight Goliath. And why are they going to let this kid represent Israel? Because if Goliath's challenges, if I beat your champion, you lose. And if you beat me, all the Philistines lose. So why are they going to let this kid, David fight Goliath? 
And David makes this argument, I'm a shepherd, and when a lion and when a bear attacked my sheep, I fought and killed a lion and a bear, which is a rare feat in the Bible or in real life. I don't know if you know anybody that's killed a lion or a bear. But even with all this and like David's trying to prove himself, his own brother is like he has three brothers in the army who were there at the time. He had, there's eight eight of them total, eight sons of Jesse, and three of them are there. And, and Abner, the oldest brother, is like, David, why are you here? You just came and snuck down here. He doesn't realize David's kind of employed by the king. It's like you just snuck down here to watch the battle because you're a little kid who just wants to watch stuff and ruin our lives because that's what little brothers do. And uh, David convinces the king to let him go. I kill a lion, but not a bear. <laughs> Mountain lion. So David comes up to face Goliath and he says to Goliath, you come to me with sword, spear, and scimitar, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, God of the army of Israel, whom you have challenged. So really this gets at the heart of, of why this story is important. And there's um, a take on this story, not by a theologian or a scripture scholar, but by, by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with him. Sociologist. Yeah, but I think, I think he captures it, actually. Uh, he says that David isn't truly the underdog in this situation, uh, that we look at this story wrong by thinking it's this great kind of victory of the little guy over the big invincible foe. Um, did you, you ever see the movie Hoosiers? I haven't. You've never seen Hoosiers? I know, I know. That is a huge gap in your... Yep, you're right. Yeah, wow. I don't, I don't know a lot of sports movies. I don't know a lot of underdog movies. I've only seen like parts of Rudy. <laughs> I've never been an underdog. <laughs> I don't associate with it. It's not exciting so, to me. I, I was rooting for the Russian in Rocky IV. <laughs> <laughs> so Hoosiers is the story of this small town Indiana basketball team that defeats, um, wins the state championship against the odds. And before the big state championship game, the uh, the chaplain for the team reads them the story of David and Goliath. But anyway, Gladwell's whole point is that, that David isn't truly the underdog. And now as, as Christians, as Catholics, or as Jewish people for that matter, uh, we would say, of course, he's not the underdog. He, of course, the name of the Lord is more powerful than any sword or spear, right? He's coming armed with the favor of God. I mean, what can beat that? Uh, but also what he points out is if David did go to battle with Goliath in their traditional way in this, you know, mano e mano, sword against sword, armor against armor, he would have been crushed. But he doesn't do that. He goes to fight Goliath with what he knows, with a sling and five smooth stones. And traditionally, even if you look at at a lot of the commentary on this by the fathers of the church, they do focus on those five smooth stones as being significant. Namely, those five smooth stones are the gifts of God within David. And so unlike Saul, who is trying to look more and more like the world and interact with the world on the world's terms and fight battles in this traditional standard way, David is going up against Goliath, not on Goliath's terms, but 
using what he knows and using the particular gifts that God has given him. We all know the story. David hits Goliath right in the forehead with one of those smooth stones and is victorious and cuts off his head. Yeah, that's a that's a great point about the terms of God versus the terms of the world and Goliath. It really is. David is like just so courageous. And, and I, you see this in people sometimes, like some people just have this awareness of God's presence and glory more than others, just gifted in that way. And they have a confidence in God that, that doesn't seem like smart, almost like the people who are challenging David from going, like some people just like feel God like that and just know stuff's going to happen with God's power. It's really inspiring. So after this, David gets to meet again, King Saul. I don't, I, it's weird. It doesn't seem like Saul's like, Oh yeah, this is my heart player. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like he's meeting him for the first time. And uh, he promised like the, the thing was, if anybody goes and beats Goliath, I'll give him wealth and honor and one of my daughters to be his wife and you'll be married to the King. So the, the drama with, David starting to meet and get into Saul's family starts to happen. Yeah. So uh, David is promised eventually to be able to marry Saul's oldest daughter at first. And Saul says, you know, not yet. You got to earn it more before I'm going to hand over my daughter. But uh, David actually kind of falls in love with or is, is fall in love by? Is that a thing? <laughs> yes, fall in love uh, by. Another one of Saul's daughters, um, <laughs> Michal. And what's the dowry? I don't know if you remember this. What's the oh. dowry that, that he asked for? And, and the question is with this dowry, is he just making up like David says, it's not a it's not an easy thing to, to marry a king's daughter. I can't afford to do that. I'm just a, a, a lowly person. And and I think Saul like at this point is a little nervous about David. So he makes the dowry something I think that entices David to definitely accept one of his daughters because I think Saul thinks the daughter is going to be. Go ahead, just say what the dowry is. Okay, fine. The dowry is 100 foreskins from Philistines. So David has to kill and lop off the male parts of 100 Philistines. Uh, so, 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 uh, David obviously now is developing a relationship with (laughs) just to recap, it's crazy to have a bag full of that. Yeah, it is. Uh, but also David, uh, becomes friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So he's really ingratiating himself to this Royal family all the while for the first of several times, uh, Saul starts to get a little bit jealous of David, uh, He loved this guy. He thought this is a great guy. He was happy to have him in his camp. But as David gets more and more popular, as David becomes more and more beloved, the relationship starts to sour a little bit. And remember this motion happened where Saul lost the favor of God. So he's, it seems like the Bible is describing him as becoming more and more unhinged. And, and part of that seems to be some sort of a paranoia and, uh, radical insecurity around everyone. And it's just so amplified with David because David is, is becoming so amazing. His own son, Jonathan is a great soldier in himself. And, and the scriptures talk about how good of a soldier Jonathan is, but Jonathan sees the 
the presence of God in David. And, and even though Jonathan should be the heir to the throne, is, is happy to be friends with David and, and defer to David in David's greatness. So this relationship deteriorates to the point where uh, Saul actively is trying to kill David now. And there's a famous story where David is playing the harp and Saul comes right at him with a spear and David kind of moves to the side, I'm assuming. And the spear hits, hits a wall. Yeah. He parries it and he flees. And then we begin what can only be described as, as a civil war in Israel. Uh, People who believe David is now the rightful king and it would be better than Saul and people that are loyal to Saul are engaged in really this kind of guerrilla fighting. And they're from two different tribes too, which is important to remember because so the, the kingship is not even traveling along the same families. It's Saul's the son of Benjamin or tribe of Benjamin. David's the, the tribe of Judah. So as once David realizes it's on, Jonathan doesn't believe it. He's like, my dad wouldn't do that to you. And, and the series of events happens and his wife, the king's daughter as well, helps him to escape and Jonathan helps him to escape. And this makes Saul mad. So as Saul's like getting ready to take the death blow on David, they basically open up the back door for him and he sneaks out and he goes to the sanctuary knob and runs into the priest Ahimelech. And David says, can you help me? And Himelech says, what, what's going on? Why are you by yourself? And David said, I'm, I'm on a top secret mission from King Saul. I can't tell you about it, but can you give me something to eat and, and a weapon? And this is a sanctuary of priests. And Himelech says, all we have is the bread of the presence or the show bread, which sits in outside the Holy of Holies on a, on a golden table. So this is the sanctuary where the presence of God is. And all these priests are there. And the priests think that David is, they, they don't know what's going on, but they think David's a good guy. And so they give David the showbread, which would be cited if you remember the story in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is walking with his disciples and they pick grains on the Sabbath. And he says, well, I can do it because David ate the showbread, which he wasn't allowed to eat. And David does this and he gets the sword of Goliath from Ahimelech. So what do you think the significance of David eating that bread that was on the altar for God, essentially? What does that tell us? I think I it's, like I'm in teacher mode now. What does that tell us? That's a great, it's a great question. I think there's a lot of possible answers for this. Uh, one that the the importance of, of God's people and and the dignity of God's people who are doing God's will is almost the presence of God. So like they're allowed, even though it's the, the showbread is these 12 loaves of bread representing 12 tribes of Israel that are reserved for the priest. And David's not a priest, but it's showing that as David's consecrate, David is consecrated that him and his men as doing God's will have a dignity of like priests that, mercy triumphs over judgment in a certain sense. Maybe what else, what do you think? Well, I, I'm just kind of thinking in terms of like, what can this tell us about the way we think of the Eucharist, which obviously is, there's a comparison between the two things. Oh yeah, for sure. 
historically and theologically and even liturgically. Um, or that Jesus Christ himself cites this episode to talk about the Sabbath and changing the rules for the Sabbath or like understanding that the Sabbath isn't for. Yeah, I think it, it, it can be easily tied into this teaching of Jesus. The um, the Sabbath is created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it can really change the way we think about the Eucharist. Now, obviously, we believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ and has a, a, a dignity of its own. But the Eucharist exists to transform us into the body of Christ, to give us grace to live the faith. And when we lose focus on the purpose of the Eucharist, like why God gave us this, then I think we, we distort its meaning and we lose sight of what's supposed to be happening with this. And, and I think it can connect to the bread and the altar because like, sure, this was offered as a sacrifice to God, but David is also God's anointed and he needs food and he needs strength. So he eats the bread and he doesn't get struck by lightning. And the Eucharist is the same way. Uh, of course, it demands our respect and requires our respect and honor, but it's also nourishment in the life of grace. It's transformative for us. It's not just the bread that's being changed into the body of Christ, but the people who receive the bread. Yeah, and the, that vocabulary of body of Christ is so important. It's, the, it's like the most precise term the church uses, and it's what when we're baptized, we become incorporated into Christ. We become the body of Christ. And the bread is called the body of Christ. When we say the body of Christ or it's changed, we're changed too. Like that sacramental change happens both times. And sometimes you're right. There's a devotion to the Eucharist where that's the body of Christ. And, and we kind of like ignore the fact that we are also called the body of Christ. And those two things are intimately related, the Eucharist being the body of Christ and the church being the body of Christ. So yeah, like in, in church law, we, we have an adoration chapel at, at my parish, and it's a great devotion. I like to pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament. But like one of the laws of the church is if you have an altar where the Eucharist is being adored in, in, like in a monstrance in adoration, you need to celebrate Mass there at least twice a month because you're not supposed to divorce the fact that it's a food that is meant to heal and nourish you. It's medicinal and it's nourishing and it's designed to be eaten by the mystical body of Christ, us, um, exactly the point you're making. Right. So David is given this bread, this show bread, and he's given the sword of Goliath because that's where it was stored. And he needed a weapon. And they said, that's the only weapon they have. And he goes, great, there's no better sword than this. And as he goes on his way, it turns out that at the sanctuary, one of the spies of Saul, or one of the spies' boys, Saul's boys, was there. Named Saul's boys. <laughs> Saul's boys. We <laughs> them boys. So Doeg, uh, it's like Doug, but spelled incorrectly. Doug. <laughs> <laughs> so Doug, Saul's, henchman, Saul's boy, Saul's boy Doug was there and he kind of like tells Saul some of this information and Saul who's already unhinged and just like getting crazier and crazier and more and more paranoid gets there and talks to Ahimelech, the head priest of the sanctuary of priests and says, 
was David here? Where did you hide him? What's going on? And Ahimelech honestly doesn't know that Saul and David are fighting. And he's like, yeah, he was here, but he's gone. I don't know where he went. And Saul freaks out and asks his soldiers to strike down Ahimelech and all the priests. And his soldiers, uh, one of them answers like, I'm not going to strike down the Lord's priest. That doesn't make sense. So then Saul commands, will anybody do this? And one of the foreigners who's not an Israelite says, I'll do it. And they slaughter Ahimelech and they slaughter 85 priests that day. So his whole family, these priestly families, because they're all uh, blood related, the priests are Levites, uh, Aaron, sons of Aaron. And Saul in his like pursuit uh, in jealousy and rage and insecurity with David ends up slaughtering all these consecrated people to God. So he's just so far away from reality at this point. So after the massacre of all of these priests, uh, David has two chances to return the favor. Uh, First, he encounters Saul in a cave, uh, but declines to kill him. Uh, Then later on, he sneaks into Saul's camp with one of his uh, leaders, Abishai, and they find Saul asleep with his spear and a jug of water next to him. So you may recall Saul has already tried to kill David with a spear. So David has a chance here to return the favor, kill Saul, win the throne, game over. Uh, It's interesting here because Saul's asleep. And I do a Bible study with the college students, and we kind of looked at the different references here with Saul being asleep. Uh, and it and it seems to be the same word, the same description as Adam being kind of in a deep sleep before the rib is removed and Eve is created. And then Abram being in a deep sleep before God announces his covenant with him. So, of course, David also is one of God's covenants. God has a covenant with David. So there is this connection between the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Abraham, and that now the covenant with David. I thought that was interesting. Like but God induces the sleep in order to, to, to bring about act. a new covenant. Okay. So there's something about this moment that is important in the covenant with David, because in this moment, Saul could very easily just, or David could very easily just kill Saul, win the throne. Nobody would blame him. In fact, the guy he brings with him, Abishai, is encouraging him to do that. But he doesn't. He walks away because he says, no, Saul is anointed. And even though he's trying to kill me, I cannot in cold blood murder him. That would be harming God's anointed. So even though it would be beneficial for him to do it, and nobody would probably have blamed him, he instead decides just to do what's right and not harm God's anointed and follow the path of the Lord, even if it doesn't seem advantageous in that moment. So he takes a spear and leaves. And I think that's a powerful, important moment where we can learn from David that. Well, I think it's kind of like you're the point you were making with Goliath, that David has confidence in the way God acts and not to have confidence in the way that the material world acts. So he's foregoing the obvious instinctual or materialistic way of assuming the crown and saying, no, I can't kill the king's anointed. That would go against the way the Lord acts. So I just have to have 
trust that the Lord is going to do something with me because I'm anointed as well. And I have to follow God's plan, even though I don't understand what it's going to be. So David walks out of the camp and then the two groups face off against each other one last time, not to fight, but in fact, to reconcile. And this is the last time Saul and David actually speak to each other and they make up. Saul apologizes to David, talks about him as his son, and it seems like everything's going to be okay. And they leave on those terms. It doesn't end well, (laughs) and the reconciliation does not last, but this is the last time the two will be face to face. And is a good point to end this podcast at least today because we've already talked for a long time and we'll continue the David story as we move along next time. So just looking at some of these themes, God will eventually, the, the scriptures will say God loved David because David was a man after his own heart. And we're kind of just looking at, at some of the themes of David. We, we've mentioned this, this respect he has for God's power over, over material power. David and Goliath, or just like what we talked about with Saul. We're also talking about um, his his love for those around him. Uh, he, he became friends with Jonathan, uh, his wife, the king's daughter, and also uh, his soldiers seem to really respect him. He becomes an incredible warrior because he has so much courage and so much courage in God's plan. And I think another interesting comparison between Saul and David is that Saul very often on the surface performs pious acts, even though it's for his own purposes. David, meanwhile, at least in the instance where he takes the bread, is performing what seem to be impious acts, but he's doing it in service of the Lord. And he's doing it understanding his relationship to God's grace and God's divine providence. And so you have this interesting thing where the guy who appears to be pious is actually not following God's plan. And the guy who seems to kind of just be doing whatever is more closely following God's plan. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. That's a great point. And, and yeah, the, the integrity is the human integrity is an important thing in the, Trust in God, regardless of what the externals look like. It's a great, it's a great point, Alex. Yeah. So that concludes this podcast on the first, I'll say third of, of the David story. Um, As I said, we'll pick this up, I guess, next time. Do you think? It's a great question. Yeah. Unless we come up with something better. (laughs) Better than David? We will do all three. Yeah, well, maybe we'll do one on Edmund the Confessor, whoever your boy is. (laughs) Probably not. Well, thank you, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.